This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. We're joined by three wonderful panelists tonight who I will introduce in detail um, in a moment. But I did want to thank Dr. Lowenstein, Dr. Chen, and Dr. Al-Sayed for joining us tonight. I've been asked um, to moderate this panel as the junior member of our um, course organizing committee. And um, hopefully I, I can speak to these um, questions from the inside as a medical student, as well as the outside um, as a researcher of health politics and practice, but we're gonna rely on your expertise and experience um, as people who are leaders and change makers in, um, in the healthcare um, sphere. So um, we all understand clearly that the US health system has some of the worst outcomes for a system that is the world's most expensive. Um, expenditures for health care, health research, and other health items have risen um, sharply since the 1980s, increasing more than tenfold, um, and now cost the nation $2.6 trillion annually. And just that you know, time period of the 1980s to today encapsulates just my own lifespan, so a tenfold increase in health expenditures. And yet, um, for fundamental measures like infant and maternal mortality, let alone the extreme inequalities in access to health insurance, um, we perform quite poorly. Um, a recent study in The Lancet uh, estimated that 40% of the deaths from COVID-19 in the US could have been avoided if the US were just on par with the average health coverage of other G7 nations. So um, given the pandemic that we're all living through and just the horrible um, tragedy that we've witnessed over the past year. Um, I think it's important to kind of have this conversation while taking a moment to reflect um, on those we've lost to COVID-19 and those who um, whose deaths perhaps could have been um, prevented by um, badly needed and long overdue reforms in the healthcare system. And then we add the problem of racial disparities. So we all know that tragically black Americans live sicker and die sooner than white Americans from a wide variety of acute and chronic conditions. Uh, I recently read that um, if being black were a separate cause of death, it would rank sixth in the US ahead of diabetes, influenza, pneumonia, suicide, homicide, septicemia, and HIV. Um, black Americans are the most likely racial ethnic group to develop cancer and 30% more likely than white Americans to die from it. And of course, when we're talking about environmental health, cancer is one of those outcomes that um, entangles all of the difficult kind of legal um, and systems um, problems with the healthcare in terms of people um, tying their exposures and their cancers, uh, tying their cancers to exposures. So environmental exposures give one explanation for these disparities. And particularly when we think about the environment, not just as air, soil, and water, but also exposure to things like violence and discrimination or access to safety. Um, and then as we've been talking about in our session so far in this course, we see how climate change um, disproportionately affects communities of color already, and also is projected to intensify those disparities in the future. Um, so uh, Anne-Marie told you a little bit about me. Um, I started medical school um, in a period of great social unrest. Um, this was following the Arab Spring and the Tahrir Square protests um, where I had spent time with other Egyptian activists um, and also the Occupy protests here in the US when I moved to Oakland um, were really um, monumental. I know Dr. Chen um, has speaking, spoken about his uh, participation in those. And the conversation about income inequality I felt was really beginning to take center stage um, in that period in the wake of the Great Recession. 
But admittedly, it didn't seem like much of that social and political dimensions of health were part of the foundations of medical education. And I myself kind of felt this disconnect um, in how to incorporate um, that, those social politics into um, the practice of the profession that I was being trained in. And then in 2014, after the police killings of Eric Garner and Michael Brown, I was one of a group of medical students who went out in our white coats and staged a die-in at the UCSF library um, that has since sparked um, the White Coats for Black Lives um, organization, which has over 100 chapters across the U.S. Um, And conversations about addressing racism in medical education and also in health more broadly. And then that same year, I left to start my PhD, and I saw health and human rights issues take center stage, um, not just in Egypt, not just um, abroad, but here in the US. Um, And the UN in that year was called by activists to Detroit to address mass water shutoffs, um, calling it a violation of the human right to water to disconnect people who are too poor to pay um, for something as basic as drinking water service. Um, And at the same time, Flint, under the control of an unelected um, financial manager, decided to switch from the treated Detroit water to untreated Flint River water and didn't pay for basic corrosion control. So that degree of austerity over fundamental vital resources and public health infrastructures was really alarming to me. And I know that's the situation that Dr. El-Sayed stepped into as director then of the Detroit Health Department. Um, And so... I feel really um, fortunate that we can all hear a bit about that experience tonight. But the exposure, so the Flint um, water crisis, I think was really not just alarming to me, but to the country. Um, The exposure of an entire city to toxic levels of lead um, and all of the um, downstream effects on neurodevelopment that that can have has been called one of the most dramatic examples of environmental racism in US history. And it's an interesting one because it brings environmental justice questions into the city where they meet long-standing urban justice questions regarding housing, clean air, food access, um, health insurance, and so forth. So I just like to um, invite us to think about environmental justice and racial justice together tonight, as I know you all have done in the course of your careers. Um, And this is an opportunity to think about the structural aspects of the healthcare system that demand retooling, particularly in the face of climate change. So I wanna introduce our panelists. Um, I apologize that I had to trim many of these bios. We have some very um, esteemed uh, career um, activists and uh, medical experts with us tonight. Um, So I'll start with Dr. Daniel Lowenstein, who is Robert B. and Eleanor Arad Professor and Vice Chair in the Department of Neurology here at UCSF. Before that, Dr. Lowenstein was um, Director of the UCSF Epilepsy Center and Director of the Physician Scientists and um, Education Training Programs at the UCSF School of Medicine. Um, He is now Vice Chancellor of UCSF um, and previously was Dean for Medical Education at Harvard Medical School. Um, So among a fascinating bio, um, a few highlights. So um, after receiving his BA in math from the University of Colorado, Dr. Lowenstein has a master's degree in man-environment relations um, from the Pennsylvania State University and an MD degree from Harvard Medical School. He completed two residencies in both pediatrics and neurology um, and has become um, a leading researcher and clinician um, investigating the genetic basis of common forms of human epilepsy and the clinical management of patients, especially with protracted epilepsy. 
Dr. Lowenstein has helped to define science policy on a national level, serving on a number of committees, including as a member of the Advisory Council to the National Institute of Neurologic Disorders and Stroke, as well as chair of that body's clinical trial subcommittee for four years. He is a celebrated medical educator and an advocate for civil rights here on our campus. He's been recognized with nearly every excellence in teaching award there is at UCSF and nationally, um, and several awards for civil, civic leadership, including the UCSF Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Award, um, which I know must be very prized as Dr. Lowenstein um, regularly talks about Dr. King as an enduring um, hero. And in 2017, Dr. Lowenstein was elected to the National Academy of Medicine. So very glad that you could join us tonight. Thanks, Nadia. Dr. Abdul Sayed um, is a physician, an epidemiologist, an educator, an author, a speaker, and a podcast host, uh, and a fellow Egyptian-American, if I may add. His newsletter, The Incision, cuts to the heart of the trend shaping our moment. He is a commentator on CNN. His three books include Healing Politics, Calling for a Politics of Empathy to Cure Our Epidemic of Insecurity, and Medicare for All, A Citizen's Guide with Dr. Micah Johnson. He's the host of America Dissected, a podcast by Crooked Media that goes beyond the headlines to explore what really matters for our health. He's a senior fellow at the FXB Center for Health and Human Rights at the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health and a scholar in residence at Wayne State University and American University, where he teaches at the intersection of public health, public policy and politics, and is the former health director for the city of Detroit and a candidate for the governor of Michigan in 2018. Thank you for joining us. And Dr. Chen, Dr. Arthur Chen, is currently a senior fellow at Asian Health Services in Oakland, California, where since 1983, he continues practicing both inpatient and outpatient medicine as a family physician, and previously served as medical director and special programs director. Since 2011, he's been an advisor and coach for the National Leadership Academy for the Public's Health, which is a CDC-supported um, leadership program for emerging public health leaders. In 2018 to 19, he served a similar role for the California Opioid Safety Network that's addressing the statewide opioid crisis and has been um, an advisor and a leader on several of our statewide ballot measures um, that have um, health implications. For almost 10 years, he served as Chief Medical Officer and Medical Director of the Alameda Alliance for Health, a Medicaid-managed care nonprofit public entity that serves low-income residents of Alameda County. And from 1996 to 2001, he was the, the Public Health Officer of Alameda County, um, where I live, so thank you. Um, from July 2011 to 2016, he was appointed to the federal, the National Advisory Committee on Minority Health. This is established, um, again, at the federal level to advise on health equity initiatives undertaken by the Department of Health and Human Services and the Office of Minority Health. He chaired the Board of Directors of the Asian and Pacific Islander American Health Forum um, and uh, was the recipient of the 2008 California Medical Association Foundation's Robert D. Sparks MD Leadership Award. So I've talked enough. I want to open it up to all of you. Um, as I'm sure all of our listeners um, can see, we have an extensive kind of range of topics that we can talk about, everything from um, medical education to healthcare delivery systems to health policy and politics. And I think the last year in particular, um, probably the last administration, but particularly in light of the pandemic, I think has just really shown a light 
um, on how important health politics are to health outcomes, to health care, um, just to a system in which we all can live, play, eat, work, and thrive um, in our environments. Um, so don't know exactly where to start, but I, maybe I'll just open broadly and ask any of you to comment or reflect um, as an opening thought. Well, let, let me just uh, jump in uh, and say two things of sort of introduction. The first is, Nadia, I'm not at all surprised to be here on a panel with, with you as the moderator, because as you well know, and our audience wouldn't necessarily know, I met you as a first-year medical student at UCSF a number of years ago, and um, I could tell back then that you were somebody special and that you would be leading uh, efforts such as, it, such as this at UCSF and beyond. So it's really, it's really a delight to see the way you've, you've blossomed. Um, and secondly, I'm really excited about this opportunity to have a conversation with uh, two individuals that I don't know well at all, but come from very interesting backgrounds. And I'm hoping that we can really drill into um, what we think is um, uh, at the center of the challenges that we face. I'm looking forward to this. Well, thank you. That means a lot to me. Um, actually, um, you know, maybe we'll start here in our home institution at UCSF. Um, and, you know, last year, um, after the protests in the wake of um, the George Floyd killing and the Black Lives Matter uprising, um, Chancellor Hoggood declared racism a public health issue. And this was a statement that activists and students had kind of been pushing for and something I know that the American um, Public Health Association has also similarly come out with a statement calling um, racism a public health issue. And you've been very vocal in your letters to the community about confronting our shared histories um, with deep humility and making it a part of our practice. So um, could you talk about that connection between racism and, and health and how leaders of health in institutions can and should respond um, in this moment to the social unrest that we are all living through? Mm -hmm. Well, I think like like um, many institutions and organizations across the nation, uh, you know, the events of, of last spring uh, really ignited a re-realization of the impact of this original sin of our country, which goes back four centuries. Um, and I I'll just say personally, given um, the involvement that, that I've had in these issues over now decades, um, the murder of George Floyd was not a surprise at all to me and many, many people who really saw the horrific video and said, this is just documenting something that we know has been going on for, for, for centuries. Um, so there was part of me personally, which felt as though, uh, which was concerned about the, the, um, the superficial awakening that would occur just because a video was so graphic. Um, today, I fear that that actually is the case that we've, that as a society, we've, we've let the, the emotional awareness and the, and the truth slip away. Regardless, as an institution, we were very, very clear um, that this was a time for us to um, redouble our efforts, which we've been pursuing for many years to recognize how um, structural racism is at the 
basis of so much of the inequities that our society faces, starting with the provision of equitable health care. So um, I can tell you, since uh, as executive vice chancellor and provost, I have the opportunity to sit literally in the room of the leadership that meets um, uh, regularly. And uh, the discussions around what we should do were, um, were really imbued with a sense of purpose and commitment and a wish to really try to set things uh, in a very in very much a better direction. Um, uh, as you know, uh, Nadia, uh, Renee Navarro, our Vice Chancellor of Diversity and Outreach, has taken a leading role uh, in these efforts over the last 10 years. Uh, but with the events of the spring, um, the leadership has uh, really um, stood up to identify the changes in policies and programs and curriculum and the resources needed to move all of that forward. I'll just give you uh, two examples of many, many things that are going on with the um, anti-racism initiative, just two. Uh, one is curricular changes. I mean, there uh, you experienced a number of things as a student. Um, in part, you referred to the die-in, which I was honored to be part of. I think it was back in December of 2014 or so. Um, but uh, just in the past year, I think because of this um, uh, redoubling of effort, there are a host of new changes in the curriculum that our professional students and our graduate students are now being exposed to. So it, it includes uh, making sure that there's an anti-racism thread in the curriculum of all the courses that are taught in the School of Medicine, uh, parallel things going in the other uh, professional schools. Uh, it has to do with... Uh, improved training of faculty, mentors, advisors uh, in the various aspects of, of DEI, which we're all familiar with. So that's one example. The other, uh, uh, which I found to be quite profound, is that we now have a policy that all search committees and all committees that make decisions of, of importance, such as the awarding of prizes, the awarding of, of grants and fellowships, intramural ones, have to be made up by at least 50% women and people of color. Um, it's now a policy. And I've now sat on a number of search committees with, the, with this change in the demographic. And I can tell you firsthand, it's extraordinary what an impact that's had on our search processes. So compared to five or 10 years ago, um, what we're seeing now is a, is a methodology, if you will, and a perspective that has been brought around the table that is having a real impact on the, on the selection of people that we bring into our community. And uh, we've seen pretty, well, very impressive changes in a number of the faculty that have been brought on, for example, into the basic science departments where up until two years ago, we did not have an African-American black uh, professor for over 20 years. We now have four faculty just in the last two years. In um, all of our basic science departments. In all the basic science departments. And secondly, in terms of leadership positions, uh, we've, we've recently filled some new vice chancellor positions. And again, uh, having been in the room and watching the way it's the selection made, there's just no question that there's an, a different orientation, uh, which I think is, is in the direction that's serving the, the, the needs of the entire community, which says we need to be representative of the population of, of not only the state of California, but of the United States. Yeah. Um, Please. I was just going to jump in on, on the back of this, and I, I really appreciate um, the, the work that is 
uh, gone into um, taking on the kind of exclusion uh, that the institution at UCSF uh, had, had potentially harbored in the past um, to, to really ask ourselves, what does it look like to be deep about our commitment to equity and inclusion? You know, that moment, um, I want to jump off of something that you said about the, 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 the seeming um, uh, lack of depth in a lot of the way that we've thought about the, the post um, the, the, the post uprising move moment uh, following the, the assassination of George Floyd at the hands of the state. Um, and, you know, think a little bit about what it takes for us to, 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 to actually take on uh, the depth of uh, the way that racism has wrapped itself around uh, our society. And I just want to think a little bit about the, the concept of, uh, of public safety, right? Because if you, if you think about, I think, what really shook people about that moment creating what I agree is, is a relatively shallow but very broad um, response. Um, it, was, it was that this officer uh, had sworn to protect the public safety and not only didn't include George Floyd as part of the public that he was to keep safe, but actually included him in the number of things from which he was supposed to keep the public safe, right? And um, that is a, a stark uh, failure of... Uh, the way we think about black folk in our country and the very concept of the public, but it's not just it's not just public safety where we feel we fail as a society to include black people in the concept of the public. It's uh, almost every other public that we think of. Think about public utilities uh, and the example that um, that Nadia uh, uh, raised. Right, both Detroit and Flint are majority black cities, um, and when you think about the emergency management, the literal robbing. Uh, of the right to self-determination from local communities. At some point in the 2010s, more than 50% of black uh, Michiganders were living uh, under some sort of uh, state-appointed um, uh, individual who robbed them of their self-determination. Um, and, and, and what that meant is that they were excluded from the public in public utilities. Think about public schools, right? And, and the fact that we continue to fund a public education uh, based on the systematic segregation and uh, and exclusion of black folks from uh, government home uh, access, right? Government provided home access through the Federal Housing Administration and then pattern what is supposed to be uh, the, the systemic means of social mobility, which is schools, based on that historical exclusion um, from uh, the concept of the public when you, when you think about uh, public goods provisions even under the new deal which is always heralded as like this 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 epoch of uh, of great um good when it comes to government investment then you think about um about public health and the fact that uh two to three fold as many black uh, Americans have died of COVID-19 in this country during this pandemic uh, relative to white folk. And, and, and it shows you that we've been excluding black folks from the concept of the public uh, systematically. And I guess, you know, I, I hope as we think about um, where we go from here with respect to health politics today, the question is really about who gets to be included in the public. A, a great book that I hope folks read, it's, it's right there behind me, um, is a book by uh, Heather McGee, uh, called the sum of us, and she makes a really, I think, profound and really well thought out argument where um, racism sits at the crux of our failure to invest in public goods more generally. Uh, and you know, she uses the metaphor of the public pool when, uh, after the Brown v. Board of Education decision, uh, rather than desegregate public pools, community pools in the South, they just paved them over. 
And obviously that's awful for the black kids who never got to go to the pool, but it's also awful for the white kids, right, who came back after the winter and said, where, where the heck's my pool? Um, and so we have to be real thoughtful about the way that racism operates to flummox our best goals in, in this society. And we're seeing it right now with, uh, you know, you think about herd immunity as a public good, right? The, the people who are systematically choosing not to get vaccinated tend to be, right, uh, Republican white men, right, in, in, in communities all over the South. And, and when you think about that, right, that is a literal choice not to invest in a thing, right, as a function of a, uh, a narrative, right, that tells you uh, that th- this thing is not just for you, it's for everyone else. So I'm just not going to do it. Um, and we have to, I think, deal with uh, that systematic exclusion uh, from the public among black folks where they can be excluded. And then the failure to invest in the public uh, if and when it has to include black folks, too. Um, and so, you know, I, I really appreciate the work that, that you guys are doing uh, at your institution, a public institution, um, to make it right. Uh, but, you know, this permeates so much of our public space and so much of our conversation about what we can do as a society. Turns out being the richest, most powerful country in the world uh, doesn't do you that well in a pandemic when racism is the overriding feature uh, of your civic discourse. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for um, taking us there because I was thinking that exact thing, you know, it's really interesting historically, public health powers were the first kind of non-policing state powers that were granted in this country. And it's kind of what we felt was the most core public service. And yet you stepped in as Detroit Health Department Director after, um, you know, following this being administration uh, moved to downsize, basically this austerity move to cut all public services down to the bare minimum. They actually said public health is not a core city service. And so it was actually a moment of stark reversal of what um, the state and the public domain had been founded to do, which was protect health and safety. And at the same time, of course, we see these massively inflated police budgets um, and literally wiped to nothing, you know, health budgets. And then um, could you talk a little bit about stepping into the health department at that time? Um, I know that um, those restrictions in universal access to water and other public services were also a point of political tension where, you know, it was considered outside of your domain, right, as health director. And it was one of the reasons I believe you ran for governor. And so could you talk about um, how that shakes out at the local level in terms of um, from the perspective of a public health um, uh, practitioner? Yeah, well, Nadia, you know, the the um... The irony here is that we're having a a broad public discussion about the idea of defunding the police, right, which is the simple idea of uh, of 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 rethinking where our public budgets go so that instead of policing poverty, we're actually doing something to take it on. I stepped in as health director in a city that not only had defunded, but had fully abolished its public health department. That, That was the the circumstance into which I walked. And, you know, it's funny because there was no broad public debate about what we should do about a health department when the city decided to throw it overboard uh, when they're trying to avoid bankruptcy, right? And, you know, all of this in the context of, uh, in effect, um, punishing a city because of the uh, incentives for broad white flight out of the city. And, a failure to manage down bureaucracy, which is probably one of the hardest things to do in government. Um, the city lost their health department. My job was to rebuild it. I walked into a department with five city employees and 85 contractors with a $1 million city public health budget. Put in perspective, uh, New York City was spending um, nearly $150 per person per year on public health, and we were spending a buck fifty. 
Um, and our job was to was to rebuild. And, um, you know, the, I, I actually met Nadia for the first time on the other side of the table uh, when a group of, you know, incredible leaders across the city uh, were working with Nadia and others to, to map um, and understand the full scope of uh, water shutoffs, another policy that was instituted under this emergency manager um, to pay for debt that accrued to the city because it was purifying water for the entire region, even while the region was pulling away people from the city uh, who would have been invested uh, in keeping that water department whole. I mean, you know, the way that that race wraps around uh, the narrative or or we pull out systematically from the narrative to justify the kind of choices that were made uh, are are critical. And, um, you know, as a health director, right, my job was to, to, to care for the health and well-being of 700,000 people. And I was told that, you know, water policy was not part of my remit, except for the fact that, of course, public health was founded around the idea of water, right? The first conversations, right? The first sort of uh, major epidemiologic in interventions uh, were around water. And so, you know, at some point you ask, like, what is public health? If it doesn't have anything to do with water, at some point, not just walk away, right? And I guess I guess that was their point when uh, they, they defunded the health department. Department. So, um, so the, the, these conversations about about how we think about uh, where we invest and why we invest and what we invest in, um, and the ways that those things get racialized is important. Because let's let's be clear here, right? When the decision was made uh, to defund public health, um, there were minimal cuts made to the police department. Why? Well, a lot of the investment, right? When uh, when people are asking what should we do about Detroit from outside of Detroit when they appoint the state appoints an emergency manager has everything to do with a racialized view of what Detroit is 85% black city right and so well we can't we can't uh, abolish the police that would just be a dangerous thing to do so instead let's just pull out the public health investment uh, for 670,000 people in a city um, uh, and you know I look at where we are now and I'm grateful um, that you know th there was a reinvestment in the health department at the same time the city of Detroit faced down this pandemic with a health department that was functionally five years old which is a crazy thing and when we talk about you know part of why there's such a huge uh, disparity in uh, COVID-19 mortality you know and and we also talk about uh, our failure to invest in a public health system those two things come together right and systematically in majority black communities, you have underinvested, under-resourced uh, public health departments. And, um, and, and, and that bears out in terms of the capacity to do basic public health blocking and tackling well. Yeah, uh, I want to continue on this um, topic about the public health department as an entity. And um, Dr. Chen, I want to, um, you know, invite you in to tell us about how that's played out in Alameda at the county level, um, what you've seen as um, a family physician who's practicing, um, and also how, you know, I think what what comes through the case of Detroit certainly is how important geography is, both in the kind of political jurisdiction of the city um, and what resources accrue to it, but also in the real um, spatial racisms that are in place so that people who live in these divided areas, like a kind of new segregation or what Michelle Alexander calls the new Jim Crow, we have really different access to services in different places. Um, and so I know that that plays out in the provision of healthcare and also in the health of our patients. Um, so Dr. Chen, I wanted to ask you um, how you first became aware of um, racism as a health issue through your practice at the county level and what um, you've done and think needs to be done to address it um, from the public health uh, perspective? Uh, <clears throat> I think, um, first of all, it's just really exciting to be part of this panel. And thank you for inviting me. And 
uh, and I'm humbled by the panelists that are here and yourself uh, and all the accomplishments and, um, and hope I have a small contribution I can make. Um, I think when I, when I think of you know, being brought up in this country essentially as a minority person, as a person of color, you know, it doesn't take too long for you to figure out you know, that there's racism um, and how you interpret it and how you react to it, I think changes as you uh, become more educated about how deep, deeply ingrained it is. And so it really became my reason for going into medicine, um, that I wanted to serve in a community that I saw, my parents were immigrants, that I saw discrimination against, and that I saw challenges from the standpoint of cultural and language barriers and poverty. Um, and, uh, and so it was really going into this you know, with that in mind as a framework for what I wanted to try and do. I was also uh, a medical student at the time at UC Davis when uh, Alan Bakke had applied for school and was rejected. And we were one of the classes that he would have been accepted into. And, uh, and so we talked about, you know, uh, affirmative action and how you reconcile the fact that we were keeping a lot of, uh, you know, African-American students and other students of color out of the system, you know, in reversing um, the affirmative action policies that had been fought so hard for during the civil rights movement. So it, it was there all along to the point of, you know, getting into public health and, and then becoming a family practitioner. I think, um, you know, I chose to work in a center that was addressing health needs within an Asian immigrant population. Um, and so it was a center that was born out of struggle, um, uh, struggle to survive student-led, um, but real serious negotiations with the county around addressing the needs of Asian immigrant populations and addressing all the barriers they were facing, both financially, culturally. Um, there was no, you know, interpreter systems available at that time. There were very few interpreters, and if you happen to speak a language other than English, you know, Spanish or others, it was because you were hired as a particular provider, but then you had to be pulled away and to provide interpretation in other settings. And so, um, so that language barriers became real big uh, as a sign of uh, real poor quality, uh, um, resulting in poor quality of care um, because of essentially very limited communication. So I, in the, with that as a backdrop, uh, you know, our organization has always had a dual type of mission of providing excellent services because of the services were needed, uh, while at the same time advocating, you know, with and for our community so that they could have a voice um, and have a presence in the halls of where decisions were being made. Um, so I came from that background um, as a family physician when I went into the public health department. And so it happened to be at a time when uh, public health was changing and public health was shifting from top down. We're the experts and we know everything that is going on within the health status of a community to a real radical bottoms up shift to what was called at that time community based public health. Uh, it was spurred a lot by efforts of the Kellogg Foundation and Robert Wood Johnson Foundation um, with initiatives. You know, one of them was called Turning Point. Um, but we were really going out and saying, we 
we're hired by tax dollars. So the community is our boss. And we would go out at a time like uh, in, in that period and, and convene meetings in neighborhoods that usually weren't visited. Uh, and yet they were the high, high uh, incidence neighborhoods, high prevalence for a number of different chronic conditions, including violence in the neighborhoods. Um, and so that was our orientation. Um, and that was the kind of the way in which I came into it. So consequently, when uh, and just thinking of environmental justice because of the theme of this program, you know, it's been almost 30 years now since the first National Environmental Justice Summit took place in, in Washington. And, um, and that was a convening that, um, that was like the first time that people of color actually participated in anything that said environment um, from the federal level. Because, you know, at that point, there was a lot of issues around, you know, endangered species and the rainforest and so on. Uh, uh, but this really combined the issue of justice and injustice um, so that there was the underlying theme of racism you know, in our system and how that butts up against our environments, where we live, where we work, where we play, where we grow up and so on. Um, so I walked into the health department um, with that as a background, and I have to give my wife credit because my wife was involved with that summit and came back and formed what was called the Asian Pacific Environmental Network. And they dealt with issues in uh, West County of uh, Contra Costa County where there's a general chemical plant and there was a toxic cloud of sulfuric acid uh, that was spreading across the Highway 80, which is one of our major freeways for those that are not in the area. And, um, and they were also dealing with the Chevron oil refinery there that was right in the middle of residential neighborhoods. Not surprisingly, you know, people of color living in those neighborhoods, a lot black and brown and some Asian groups that were living in those neighborhoods. And they had to put up with these emissions that just would happen spontaneously uh, and, and cause tremendous health problems, mainly respiratory problems, asthma, um, and causing people to have, you know, rashes, um, skin reactions, and with no warning that these were happening, uh, and yet they were happening repeatedly. Uh, and so that was kind of my intro to public health and seeing a lot of that happening. And, and my wife was involved with what was called the Laotian Organizing Project, which ultimately uh, became a collaboration between them, people in the city, and the Contra Costa Health Department to set up an alarm system so that when those emissions took place and the chemical plant or the refineries were aware of them, they would immediately uh, call in and set off the alarm so that people would at least know, shut your windows and stay indoors uh, and listen to the radio for instructions or call this number so that you could know what to do. So all this is, you know, uh, kind of uh, a result of ground up community participation and engagement and speaking out and having voice. And for me, um, directly in Alameda County, we were undergoing the reconstruction of the Cypress Freeway structure. And I remember seeing a newspaper article about our environmental health department and a big community gathering that was taking place that was, uh, you know, community outrage because there were trucks coming in, removing dirt from the uh, area where the freeway was going to be reconstructed and also re removing a lot of rubble. 
And that was pushing out dusts. And there was also dioxin uh, into neighborhoods where kids were playing. And this is West Oakland. So at that time, this was the mid 90s. That's a, essentially a black neighborhood. Um, and so I remember seeing the quote from our environmental health representative who was at that community gathering saying, this is not in our jurisdiction. Uh, apologetically, I wish we could help, but you know, uh, there's really no authority that we have over this. And I read that and I, you know, and coming into the health department, the orientation is ground up community-based public health, coming from a community orientation where, of course, we never had jurisdiction over anything in the community, but we had a voice and you could choose to exercise that voice. Um, so I ended up going down and meeting with the folks, uh, talk, checking in with the environmental health people. And as a health officer, I had a lot of, uh, you know, entree uh, to that and being able to talk with people and find out and educate myself more of what was going on. Uh, the long story short is that we still didn't have any authority. Uh, we didn't have any kind of uh, jurisdiction, any kind of statutory responsibilities in the area. But we were able to convene state, you know, toxic substance control people, EPA, both Cal EPA, as well as federal EPA, in addition to our local fire departments, in addition to our transportation people, and essentially, you know, build up a monitoring system on air quality in that neighborhood and also reroute these diesel trucks that were sitting in the neighborhoods waiting to, to, uh, to go in and receive their load uh, and then take it out of the area, but essentially reroute them to areas where they're less residential and uh, and no kids around at the same time. Um, and so it was a it was an introduction to environmental justice in neighborhoods, and it was a, also an introduction as to what you could do um, if you had a different orientation and did not allow the kind of the bureaucratic response to take place. Does that solve all the problems? No, it's a downstream solution. It's a downstream reactive solution. Um, and still within the systems are the upstream decision-making on where these type of, uh, you know, exposures are going to take place, where you can lay down a freeway, uh, where you can uh, build a chemical plant, where you can have an oil refinery. Uh, those are the upstream uh, decisions that are still, I think, a big problem for us in the cleanup and, and how, how well and how actually, how not so well we've done in cleaning up toxic neighborhoods or brownfields neighborhoods where they're laden with uh, toxic substances that are still polluting the air and causing, you know, disproportionate impact on uh, people of color. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and thank you, because I think that kind of brings our discussion about, you know, racism and health education, the healthcare system, like squarely into dialogue with environmental justice. And, um, you know, classically environmentalism has kind of been seen as a pastoral um, hobby, right? A, a connection with the great outdoors um, and the serene sort of um, lake and woods and mountains of the kind of a throw picture. Um, and yet really where environmental justice um, problems emerge or where the rubber hits the road for communities, I do think is in cities, it's in these urban areas, it's in the shadow of the oil refinery. Um, and what you're talking about brings me to um, wanna ask kind of a, a spectrum of questions, but I'll kind of pose them as two. We have kind of what you've described as the local or the downstream effects. So um, I'm thinking about, 
you know, what it took for, I think, um, one of the interesting things about our present moment is that there's so much information. There's so much um, access to information, but also misinformation. And so I, one of the things that I think in, in the environmental justice world in particular, which is absolutely marked by uncertainty and fuzzy epidemiologic relationships that often take a lot of time to kind of puzzle together. And um, what you're saying about communities having to organize their own reactive um, measures to combat those upstream challenges, I think raises this problem of expertise and information. And I wonder if each of you kind of differently situated in this world as health communicators and leaders could speak to the present media environment that we're in and what, you know, how to both perhaps balance um, the need to not replicate, um, Dr. Chen, what you called the public health of the past, where you know there was one voice of expertise and there was no room for a multiplicity of opinions. So to validate what people are saying about their own experiences, um, and yet also to have some kind of authority um, and authoritative sources of information, just the role of public trust, I think, as a foundation for combating environmental justice issues. Um, and then, you know, maybe I'll start with that question that I want to ask us, take us upstream into those um, national policy prescriptions that we can kind of concretely think about. Um, but just as like our kind of media environment, which we could say is one of the environments that I think has a huge impact on health. Um, Dr. El-Sayed, you work so, um, so much in that public media environment um, and you bring a voice of authority and of experience. Um, but how does that resonate or perhaps what are the frictions that you encounter um, when you're trying to be that voice in the world? Yeah, I'll, I'll say a couple things about that. First, um, there is a tremendous level of mis and disinformation. And that is in part because of the ecosystem of how media is funded. Um, we, we forget that media itself is a business and it requires eyeballs uh, to make money. And so when you dissociate any sort of truth from the need to get clicks, you get what's happened on social media, which is that, uh, you know, if disinformation drives clicks, then why not? Right. And so it's not that, you know, there is a purposeful um, uh, effort to disinform. There's just no effort to stop the disinformation simply because it's lucrative um, and uh, it, 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 it drives eyeballs and, and drives clicks. And, and that's a real problem, right? Um, so that's, that's number one. Number two, I think that um, those of us with a level of expertise have made two cardinal, three cardinal mistakes. The first is that we have seeded the information space generally, right? And what I mean by that is that increasingly um, the halls of expertise are incentivized to communicate within each other rather than to move information into the spaces where other people who do not have uh, the same level of engagement um, don't necessarily, or, or, or are, excuse me. And part of that is just how we talk, right? I mean, there's a uh, there's an academic lexicon that incentivizes uh, small ideas dressed up in big words rather than big ideas dressed up in smaller words. Um, and I do think that that is a uh, it is a function of a certain level of elitism that um, that I think drives uh, the the sort of uh, the the economy of of academia, which is which is um, more about uh, prestige sometimes than it is about actual um, engagement, and and that can be a real problem. 
The second part of it is that um, is that we have not done a great job communicating in ways, even when we choose to try and communicate outside of uh, the halls of, of of academia, we have not done a great job um, communicating in the ways that most people uh, communicate, which is that we sometimes forget the fact that um, empirical reasoning is something that uh, you spend a long time learning how to do uh, in the world. And a lot of folks don't spend that much time learning how to do it. And the way that most people communicate is not in, in empirics, it's in stories. And so we forget to share the stories that that tell the the story of the data that we're trying to um, to, to engage with. And that doesn't mean, I, I, I hate when people use the word, quote unquote, dumb it down. It's not about dumbing it down. It's about communicating it in a way that grasps both the emotional tone and tenor uh, of the content and the the, the uh, empirical tone and tenor uh, of the content. And then the third cardinal mistake I think we make um, about communicating is to forget that um, it's it's not about the content, it's about the frame. Uh, you know, and this is this is something I learned, frankly, as a politician when I ran for office. Um, and I'll, I'll share a quick story just just from the the sort of halls of political storytelling to make the point. Um, LBJ was one of the most effective presidents in modern American history. If you look at LBJ, he was not very good at any aspect of politicking except for politicking itself. And what do I mean by that? He wasn't the best speaker. He wasn't the smartest guy in the room. He wasn't, you know, the um, the most inspiring or charismatic. He just really knew how to persuade. And part of the way he knew how to persuade was that he understood framing implicitly. So when he first ran for Congress, he ran in a seat he probably shouldn't have had because it was a neighboring district from the one he grew up in. And he was running mainly against a uh, pig farmer. And he told his staff, um, look, I want you to tell the media tomorrow that this pig farmer is having relations with his animals. And they're like, that's crazy. That's never going to stick. And he said, I know. I just want to hear him deny it. And so they went and leaked this to the press. Obviously, it was not true at all. Um, And in doing so, what that farmer ended up doing was every time he went to the media, he said, I just want to every time I want to clarify something that you may have heard about me. I am not actually having relations with my animals, not said in those terms. And so instead of talking about all the things he wanted to do and all the ways he wanted to fix, you know, problems in in his district, he was talking about relations with animals, whether he was denying it or confirming it, whatever. The only thing people really heard him say was relations with animals. And so the point that I'm trying to make here is that we have to remember, right, that the way that the media picks up what we talk about is entirely in frames. And the things that we ought to be talking about are the key relationships that matter. We want to be telling the stories that capture the frame that we want to build. And we want to keep driving that frame rather than speaking in ways that tend to get too uh, too um, mired in the nuances of a particular issue uh, that misses the broader overall message. And, um, you know, obviously we should not be, <laughs> we should not be uh, uh, engaging in the, in the kind of, uh, you know, absurd uh, tactics that you know LBJ used to get elected to Congress, but it is important to understand that in the realm of communication, the things that you choose to spend your oxygen on are the things that people are going to associate with you. And you know when you look at the communication that's happened in real time in the context of this pandemic, it all, all honestly has been extremely confusing for a lot of folks because we are talking about these nuances, um, you know, for the sake of, of of transparency, and that's important. But we forget that. When you spend more time talking about the nuance than the overall message, right, you flipped the issue. 
Uh, and um, and so we've got to get really smart about how we communicate in ways uh, that are true to form about the ideas that we want to move, to, that connect to the emotions of those ideas, that do so in a way that's deeply transparent, but that captures the story underneath the data and does so in a way that opens up uh, uh, more to folks. And the last thing I'll say is that, you know, one of the best communicators I've ever met told me something I'll never forget. He said, if you tell people everything, they'll remember nothing. If you tell people something, they'll remember something. And, um, and I think sometimes we get caught up trying to tell people everything rather than telling people something and doing so in a way that, that scaffolds information and allows them to build a working model of how the world works in their minds rather than just hosing them with information or using jargon um, that tends to make it very opaque. Thank you. I think that's so important. Um, I think, yeah, it's the bedrock for when we talk about structural change, we also have to achieve that change. And that comes through messaging and talking, whether it's at a, a panel like this or at a community roundtable in West Oakland, um, as Dr. Chen was doing, um, or at these um, federal committees that you all have um, sat on and, and influenced science policy at that level. Um, Dr. Lowenstein, what do you think the message is, the big framing message that we need to get across about the impacts of climate change on health? And what do you think, um, you know, are the tools that a 21st century physician needs that perhaps a 20th century physician overlooked? Yeah, I, I knew you were going to ask me this question because we 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 talked about this earlier. Um, let me let me just first for a moment respond to Abdul. I really uh, appreciated what you just said about the communication in the media. I, I just want to throw in I, this is hardly anything I know um, much about at all. I'm just a an observer. But I I, I before we get to your question, Nadi, if you don't mind, Please. I'd like to I'd like to, uh, I'd like to ask whether or not um, we're in a, in a new, in, in a whole new place, uh, given what we've observed with regard to disinformation and false, you know, you know, fake news over the last, uh, number of years. I've been really, um, I read a, a piece by, um, Jonathan Rausch called the constant, the constitution of knowledge. It was in national affairs a couple of years ago. And I was really struck by, his observation midway through the, you know, the, the term of the, the last president, um, where he talked about the, 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 the new, the new form of disinformation. And, and he, he essentially said that disinformation is, is as old as, you know, as can be, but it's recently been, um, he said, cross-pollinated with the internet to produce something completely different, which is this decentralized um, uh, ability to have what he called uh, a swarming effect, which which is allowed for the existence of something we've never known before at this scale, which is trolling. And troll trolling's different because what it does is they uh, trolls they 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 attack real news, they attack the source of of news, they disseminate fake news, and they they can copy themselves. So. Uh, I, I'd love to know what you think about, and again, I know this is a bit of a cul-de-sac here, Nadia, but I think it's really important because how do we contend with the need for societal change when we're facing the possibility um, that we've lost the opportunity to have some reasonable acceptance that there, that there is at least a marketplace of truth, not that we, we should ever expect that everyone agrees on what the truth is, but there's 
from an epistemological point of view, we've we've always, as societies, agreed that there's an importance of of having an agreement that there is a marketplace of truth. Thoughts on that? Mm. I, I shared in the um, chat just a, an, a a piece that I'd written up about um, about disinformation online. You know, there's a really interesting um, Neil Postman uh, who. Um, who was a real thinker on the nature of the information ecosystem, wrote this great book with a terrible title called Amusing Ourselves to Death. And he wrote this in an era when he there was no internet, um, but he wrote it about the nature of online, of, of, um, of cable news. And uh, he talked about the blurring between, um, about, between uh, information that was necessary and information that was entertaining. And we are in a moment, right, where even beyond that, that time when information became a form of entertainment, where not only is information now a part, piece of entertainment, but it's like we're all part of, a, um, of an ongoing real world uh, uh, reality television show of our own lives that's constantly feeding, right? And so he also talks about that space when fact checking is as fast as information is fast. And he argues that we actually were he, – he, it's funny because he wrote this before the internet, right? But he said we are getting to a point now where information moves faster than our ability to fact check information, which takes us out of the actually unique era in the information moment where fact checking was as fast as information was fast, hmm. right? And he his argument was that actually for most of the world, most of the epochs of time – Information, fact-checking was slower than information, but information was so slow that you weren't inundated by information that didn't move, uh, that, that hit you from all over the world. In fact, like there was this moment when information became faster than a person was fast, right? Like you imagine before there was any telecommunications, you only could get information as fast as a person could travel. And so it was this moment where people could print all kinds of misinformation, but you could verify it relatively quickly. Mm -hmm. We got to a point where actually verification became as fast as information was fast. And now we left the point where uh, that was the case. And now information was far faster than the capacity to, to verify. That coupled with the information as entertainment, coupled with um, the, uh, the, 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 the way that we can get information from all over the world all the time that inundates us, creates this this space where I worry that you're right, where we're just never really going to be able to catch up again. Um, and, you know, that piece that you, you mentioned, I hadn't read it, but it sounds like a really interesting point. But this is something that I think we're going to have to deal with really quite quickly. And my sense is that everything that's coming from outside of where you are is going to start becoming so blurry that I think it may force people to be thinking very local very quickly. And then what's also interesting is if you look at what's coming up on the social media horizon, increasingly you are you're seeing apps that are focused on the vocalized word rather than uh, rather than the written or viewed word as a way um, almost to uh, address the sort of like compacting or, or or yeah compounding of multiple pieces of information that you can't process fast enough because right. you can only really listen to one piece of it at any given time and by the time it's said it's gone right um it's not recorded it's just happening in real time uh because i think we're starting to get to a point where we just cannot process fast enough uh, or make sense emotionally or intellectually out of all of what's happening uh to us at any given time from anywhere in the world 
Mm -hmm. So, so thank, thank you. So Nadia, I'll come back to your question. Uh, I'll just briefly say that um, uh, if you're, if you're asking, you know, what, what do I see happening in medical education, for example, as uh, in, in terms of addressing this existential threat uh, of climate change and its impact on health. Um, there's, there's been some movement uh, at UCSF, for example, with the new bridges curriculum. Uh, there's a whole block that's called health and society, which builds on a, a previous block called health and the individual. And it focuses on, on contents related to bias in medicine, clinical ethics, public and global health theory, uh, things of that sort. Um, uh, it, it, it touches on aspects of environment and health. Um, I don't think it goes far enough. Um, I don't think that a significant number of our students, your former colleagues, um, are you know, pursuing um, careers that are going to touch on, uh, on this threat. Um, and th it, that sort of brings me to the other question that I know you and I talked about a couple of weeks ago, and I'd love to hear from our other panelists. Um, and that is, what, what's it going to take? What is it going to take for the change that we all seek? Um, if, if, if we hypothesize that at the basis of all this is uh, enormous economic disparity, which manifests itself in essentially all the things that we've been talking about, um, what's it going to take to um, create a healthcare system um, that uh, uh, provides equitable care to all? Um, what's it going to take to um, reverse uh, the impact on the climate, uh, which has had uh, such devastating effects across the globe. What's it actually going to take here in, in, in the United States of America, given what we've observed over the last you know, couple, few decades, right? The, the, the piece that you've referred to and that, um, that um, uh, Bob Gould uh, listed in the chat, everyone should read the Lancet Commission, um, the public policy and health in the Trump era. And there's another piece that's coming up from uh, the Institute uh, for Global Health Sciences at UCSF. It's not yet been published, but I, re I read uh, a preprint called The U.S. Response to COVID-19, a Case Study, Required Reading for Everybody. Um, given, given, what, given what the data show, what you started out the panel with, what's it actually going to take? Well, well, let me jump in here. Uh, <laughs> if it's appropriate. Um, first of all, my head is just spinning because uh, there's so much that's been said. And, and I guess, you know, my comment on the misinformation is that it's, you know, that it, it's really bad news because it's only going to get worse. I, I listened to a, um, uh, a session about, uh, you know, a clip of Tom Cruise making a statement um, in a drummed up phony video. But because the technology is getting so good now, uh, they were projecting with, uh, with AI and with uh, a lot of facial recognition that we're rapidly reaching the point where there will be a depiction of somebody well-known, could be a decision maker. The nightmare scenario is that they're saying, I'm initiating a nuclear attack. And, um, and that actually the fact checking, as you're pointing out, Abdul is so slow that it takes time to figure out, was that real? Was that phony? Um, and that that is exactly where the technology is leading us towards if we don't regulate it. 
if we and even if you regulate it, obviously that only addresses a certain level of uh, restriction or constraint. Um, that in fact, um, you know, the, but that in fact this will still happen. Um, but it's important to recognize that there is still a role for regulation, even though people don't like to touch that one because of the First Amendment. Um, but looking to the future, that the social media industry, which essentially has no regulation at this point, um, has got is a real media powerhouse and has to be looked at as traditional media with all the regulations that are applied and and you know and that's part of the solution even though that's not the whole solution the other part the other reaction i have to that misinformation campaign because um, we see a lot on the ground level um in our communities and um is just you know a downstream recognition that we're going to be dealing with the negative impact of misinformation for a long time as both of you comment on and so how do you undo that and, you know, even though it's a downstream response, it's still critical because there's still opportunities as we work on the upstream regulation and, uh, and ways in which to, you know, to cut down on the flow of misinformation. Um, it's being spewed out and it's affecting good people. And, um, and so we probably don't have the skill set um, well ingrained, let alone the emotional intelligence to be able to parse through that and encounter somebody who has clearly been injected with a full inoculation of misinformation and be able to talk with them and talk through some of that to be able to raise the possibility that there is an alternative view or an, or an alternative truth. Um, and, you know, I'm referring to things like dialogue skills and how you create safe spaces so that people can actually have an exchange of opposing views and walk away uh, kind of open to learning from each other um, and breaking open these tiny little the slivers of openings for the for the possibility that people would rethink the, the world as they have, you know, come to know it as a result of their universe of, uh, you know, information and, and information outlets that they've adopted as their own and as their truth. Um, so it's a, it's, it's a significant, I think, area of dealing with both upstream and downstream, just as we do within the healthcare system. And the last thing I'd say, then when you relate, superimpose on top of that culture and, you know, backgrounds and histories and historical traumas that get triggered you know, through the discussions that occur, um, particularly, you know, in oppressed communities um, that have been dealt, you know, so many of the injustices of our racial uh, inequality and in systems that it, it, it makes it even harder to have that safe discussion. Um, and so there's a lot of work to do, essentially, and, and that's all I was going to say. How do we apply that to our healthcare system? Uh, with all of its fragmentation, with all of its, in, you know, unequal treatment, you know, um, to quote the IOM report, and um, systematic racism, where we know it's the, you know, it's the quote that's been put out there, I think, attributed to Don Berwick, you know, every system will achieve the results it's designed to achieve. And um, until we redesign it, until we go to the point of saying, what is this health system for? What are we trying to deal with? Um, what are the ways in which we'll gauge success in our systems? 
Um, until we do that in a real honest way, which would involve looking at, you know, all the different populations and subpopulations that are in a given jurisdiction or a given catchment area or in the nation uh, in the, at the federal level and to say, what do we need to do to keep, number one, monitoring what the health status of our subpopulations are? Um, and then what once we know an awareness or admission is the first step right to the solution um once we know where those disparities are those inequities are which are so blatantly obvious in in some subpopulations and not so severe in other populations but they still exist then you know coming up with the interventions and the appropriate interventions whether it's in the you know uh in the workforce bringing people in in the workforce, making sure that the research gets done, making sure that the data is collected and aggregated and disaggregated to make sure that there are no excluded populations that, you know, that therefore don't show up on the database and therefore uh, you know, that we cannot track their health status and so on, which is, you know, what the the life that I've led has been a crying out of attention for Asian American and Pacific Islander populations, uh, because there was no data, you know, when I started coming through the ranks, and and uh, and it was black, white, and other, uh, and then struggling to try and find enough numbers uh, to be able to get an Asian and Pacific Islander aggregate, uh, and then realizing that we have in in examining that that we have a bimodal distribution rather than a bell-shaped curve uh, in our populations, and so. Consequently, the average looks pretty good, but it discounts the fact that there's a lower half to that bimodal distribution that's suffering. Um, and Art, I, I, let me press press you on this, Nadia. I hope you don't mind. Sure. I just want to press you on this. Um, um, I, and I'm speaking now as an individual. I'm not representing the University of California, San Francisco. <laughs> um, I, you know, the the data are there. I mean, we know the inequities exist. We know there are tremendous disparities. We can collect more data, but I think people, we are aware. The question is, and again, I'll just pose this, you know, look at, I can't, I can't know for sure what he, what he would, what he would think, but I would bet that someone like Barack Obama recognized that single payer would be an approach to our healthcare system that would be of great benefit. But he knew that he couldn't utter the term because he'd be branded even more as a socialist. And look, look what we got out of you know, that, that effort to reform our, our healthcare system. Um, hardly a grand success. So I guess my question again to, to everyone is, what will it take what will it take to reform the system in the direction that, again, Art, I'm sorry to, to have interrupted you, but you're, you're asking for the kind of reformation that, you know, we, we've, we've been talking about for forever. What's it going to take? Yeah. So, well, I, I'll, I'll continue if, um, yeah. you know, to, I mean, there's, to me, there's a, you know, in public health, we've always talked about the three-legged stool, you know, knowledge you know, strategy and public will. Um, and that's how you get major change. Um, so on a, in a broad level, we're really, you know, probably the public will is in question 
as to whether or not we have enough public will. And when you superimpose on that the misinformation that we just talked about um, and how, you know, uh, legislation like single payer legislation or the concept of national health insurance is just blasted by the insurance industry um, with notions of you won't have choice of your health plan or that it's going to be too expensive or it's the highest tax you know, increase in the, in the nation's history, all of which in a certain, to a certain extent is true. Um, but it bypasses the fact that, you know, you would have choice of actually your own doctor and you would have choice of the hospital you go to, and you would have choice of all the other things that are probably more important than choosing your health plan and so on. So anyway, public will is an issue that is, uh, I think a challenge because of the misinformation that is out there and the the way in which, you know, people are already labeling things and framing things as a big socialist, you know, kind of leftist uh, kind of uh, takeover um, of our healthcare system. And so we have a lot of work to do because that's not easy work. That is the tough work of education and uh, sessions and trainings and having that uh, dialogue take place in, in all the media outlets, as well as, you know, that's objective. Um, as well as, uh, you know, on the ground level within communities. Um, I think policies, um, one of the other issues, uh, just to comment on that also, is that keep in mind what we're recognizing now more than ever. We obviously, we obviously used to think of policy as being the real upstream solution, but policy is downstream from political power and from community power and voice. So the whole effort that's building right now nationally around the concept of building power in our communities and the, and the way that you construct that power, whether it's organizational, uh, institutional backbone power and, and the, you know, having the capacity to be able to generate, um, you know, movements, whether it's the organizing that takes place in the coalition building and the alliances and the formations that occur that build a broader, broader base of people who uh, are like-minded and, and uh, addressing the same kinds of challenges they have, or whether it's the narrative and the messaging that we're talking about, all those apply, um, the framing and the messaging, um, so that the narrative can actually influence the public consciousness um, to be able to push you know, the, the momentum and the public will to the point of actually making the policy change which is further downstream from that. That's a real critical piece. And the last thing I'm going to say is we need the, the policies in place. You know, I, I referred to in, on one level, the class standards. Uh, the class standards, which are the cultural, linguistic, appropriate services standards, came out of the Office of Minority Health, which came out of the 1985 Heckler Report on Black and, you know, the Task Force on Black and Minority Health, which was a 13-year project in trying to find a design solution to the health disparities that were impacting our country, a design solution that actually applied to the healthcare system. Mm -hmm. They've been kind of uh, shoved under the rug. Um, they've made a comeback. This originally came out in 2001 and then came out again as an enhanced version in 2013 um, but within them, and, and I had this visual, you know, that we could show if it's, if it's available. Within them, they talk about governance and organizations, whether you're a small health institution or whether you're a large hospital delivery system or you're a medical empire, um, that there are 
there are issues around governance, somewhat related to what you said earlier, Dr. Lowenstein, around um, the effort to really recruit people from the community so that your 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 faculty look um, uh, like they represent the population that you're serving. Um, that's that principle applies in governance and leadership, so that you do have people that were, are representative of the populations being served, as small as some communities may be, who have a life experience uh, that they can relate to that, that covers a spectrum of socioeconomic kind of background, um, and that you know therefore are more sensitized to the issues that need to be addressed and how to monitor those uh, problems that exist and the status of uh, the health status and the outcomes um, that we really strive to achieve in, uh, in attaining health equity, that that has to be part of the design. Mm-hmm. And if it's not in the design from the top level, from the way federal funding is established mm-hmm. all the way down to the way healthcare is uh, implemented at the local level, then you won't get the, um, you won't get the solution. Um, but that's the, that's the hard work that needs to be done. Yeah, I, I, I think, um, you know, Art, you said something uh, that I think is, is true, and I wanted to, to offer some, some frame on it. Um, you said, you know, uh, policy is downstream of political power, and I think that's, that's entirely true. I also think that political power is downstream of cultural narratives, and what we tell ourselves is true about ourselves. And I think there is a set of narratives that we have allowed to be imbibed over the past 40 years that tells us that government is bad, it is part of the problem, that tells us that tax dollars are bad, that they uh, are a a, a ripping away of our hard-earned money. They tell us that some people are are less deserving because they don't work as hard or uh, they they are less less, uh, engaged with the problems that matter in their own lives. Um, There are narratives that tell us that uh, it is the powerful who uh, decide what ought to be, um, and that you know money and power are 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 value and um, uh, tell us the the value of what a human is. I mean, we talk about somebody's worth, uh, and you say, what are they worth? Um, and I think that there are two pieces that I hope um, I can I can offer that that I really want folks to to think a bit about is that we have to test these narratives all the time and to do so in a way that takes them on and talks about the violence, the civic violence that they do in people's lives all the time, whether it's shutting off their water or poisoning their water or uh, robbing their kid of a high quality school of, or putting uh, the the, the consequences of burning stuff that comes out of the ground uh, into their lungs, um, that it it, it justifies a, a system where we watch as poor folks and black folks get systematically trodden down uh, by that system and we justify it by blaming the victims of it. And we need to build community around doing that thing. That's what culture is. It is, a, it is about changing a narrative that we share together about why uh, things happen around us and about our own agency in changing them. Um, and you know, if I learned anything from my experience running for office, uh, it's that you can run all day on the right policies. But if they don't fit in with the narrative that people tell themselves about who we are and who we want to be, then it doesn't matter. And so there has to be work done to change those narratives and engage with those narratives uh, and rethink them and challenge them uh, and speak to them and do it in a way 
uh, that brings a level of empathy because oftentimes those narratives themselves are a form of misinformation. They're a form of deep misinformation about what matters in the world and about how the world got the way it got. Um, and I think if we, if we are thoughtful about engaging with a level of empathy, that cultural narrative that is told about how the world works, about changing that narrative, about creating groups of people together who move uh, with respect to a different narrative, a different understanding of who we are and who we want to be, I think in the end, that's what creates change. But it takes us having an honest conversation with the people around us, whether we are people who you know, are having those conversations with our friends and our loved ones and our family members and the people we work with, or we're doing them on various platforms like this one, uh, or we're engaging in the media every day. It's about perpetuating a challenge to the narrative that we have right now that has created this architecture of inequality. Uh, and it is about replacing that narrative with one uh, that situates um, the well-being of people and the equity of, of uh, that, that we seek to, to create um, at the center and then reorienting the way that we allocate resources around it. Um, I, I don't see any other way forward uh, unless we are able to, re to create that kind of a narrative because I worry that no matter what, if we have a narrative that tells us that money and power matter more, we will continue to give access to resources to money and power. We will continue uh, to perpetuate the inequality uh, under which so many people suffer. Thank you. Um, I, the anthropologist in me is delighted um, that we're having this conversation about, you know, narratives and culture change, because I do, you know, I actually wasn't planning on um, asking us to talk about information and misinformation, um, but it did seem so germane um, to thinking about how communities at the local level can make their struggles visible. I remember um, being in Detroit and talking about these water shutoffs. And one of the things that you said to us as director, Dr. Al-Sayed was, you know, bring me the data. Like we need data and we don't even have the infrastructure to fund this kind of research. And there's such a skew in what gets funded, what's even able to be represented in an epidemiologic table or, you know, a nationally represented study that sometimes um, we lose that that local or granular perspective that I think each of us doing our part to um, use whatever um, devices and, and tools we have at hand um, to speak about environmental justice, about inequality and the way that it affects us personally, it does help to cut through the noise um, with a, hopefully some total and aggregate of these stories um, to bring the kind of planetary politics home. You know, there is that, uh, I, I don't know which politician or where it originates, but the saying all politics is local. I think when we're talking about planetary politics, it becomes especially challenging and especially important, um, as you're all suggesting, to really make it local, our neighborhood, our institutions, um, our communities. And, um, you know, it also occurred to me uh, that this conversation about misinformation, you know, I had kind of overlooked the fact that climate denial was really one of the first, you know, following the tobacco, you know, companies and pharmaceutical companies, um, kind of misinformation has a huge public health impact. Um, and that it's only through a lot of um, 
retroactive work and exposing those strategies of industry lobbying and of deliberate misinformation um, that we have moved the needle on some of those issues. And I hope that um, the health sciences will continue to take environmental health and environmental justice as a core aspect of what we do because the implications are massive. And I do think we have the ability to use our um, expertise uh, to support what communities know that they're experiencing the effects of climate change. Um, so I want to thank you all um, for joining us. Apologies if you can hear my dog. Um, um, but it's been an absolute pleasure. This was fascinating and excellent conversation. Um, but I can't thank you enough. I feel um, like I would also welcome anyone who's in the audience to um, send us an email and let us know um, if you also have any thoughts about um, the narratives and the actions that we need to um, enact some structural change. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.